house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Just a guy trying to figure things out. From the director of the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile comes the story of a man brought back to life and the town he brought back with him. You don't know what you meant to this town suddenly being alive. Jim Carrey. The Majestic. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that has made Naomi Watts promise to shred our files on all our listeners the instant we die. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. You are you are looking majestic today. I'm just going to assume you're looking majestic. I can't see you. We are in different cities and states, but you know. I am in like pin curl. I don't know whatever that like. I'm in like pin curls and a hat, sensible gloves, and a pocketbook. I am. I, am I thought a, you were going to say that you are resplendent in digital fur technology because on the subject of things that are majestic, we are speaking to you from the other side of the Cats trailer having debuted. Yes. Listen, are... I am not the glamour cat. I am the theater cat. <laughs> this is very much about a theater cat, sort of a movie theater cat. This movie, yeah. you could call Jim Martin Carrey's Landau, character Martin Landau, the theater cat. Martin Landau, the theater cat, who genuinely deserves to go to the heavy side lair. Let us be honest about that. He's very old oh, in this movie. Oh, oh. To the heaviside Okay, so having watched the Cats trailer like three more times just this morning on my brand new like 4K television, I'm genuine. I've I've crossed over from what the fuck is this going to be excitement to like genuinely like oh I'm gonna I could be genuinely moved by this. My my excitement feelings are like so multi pronged. I am absolutely <laughs> yes. ironically excited to see this movie. Oh sure. I like I it I will riot if it is not in three D and smell a vision. <laughs> and I am truly authentically excited for it. Like and I'm excited for it for like hoity-toity reasons and just like pure emotion reasons like i i've watched that trailer a million times i choke up every time uh during jennifer hudson's big moment but also like i don't Everything has become so utterly cynical, which isn't to say that Cats isn't just a cash grab. Of course. But do you want this cash grab, or do you want, like, we're also recording this the weekend The Lion King opened. I was going to say, like, at the very least, these cats have facial expressions. And, like, I don't know. There's a certain level that, like, there is, while it is incredibly earnest, and, like, that invites us to make fun of it, there is a degree of they are trying to do something creative 
and like take a certain degree of like silly risk here. Yeah. That, like, how can you not be excited for it? And like, I don't know. Of course, like all cats of cats is a risk in and of itself because of what it is. It is it's fucking T. S. Eliot poetry about goddamn cats. It is a cat right. named Jenny Any Dots. It is like it just it risks like ridicule at every turn and probably deserves it at like at least half of the turns. But then I look at this and I'm like, oh, like they really invested in the dancing. I'm going to genuinely be a Francesca Hayward stand by the end. Oh of yeah, this we are both I'm on the same page of, of being way into what Francesca Hayward is serving in this. I think I'm gonna be a Jason Derulo stand after this too. Because like he's taken on probably the most challenging role in this, which is that like the Rum Tum Tugger is a ridiculous thing on its face, right? Like, sure. and I think from the little that I'm seeing in the trailer, I think he's carrying off that kind of tightrope walk of being really sort of like full of himself, but in, you know, a cats-ish way. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm taking it too seriously. I don't know. He, he seems... No, we both are like fully taking this movie seriously. We've gone around the bend. Like... We've, we, we've fully gone around the bend. We have... We have inhaled the Taylor Swift sprinkled catnip and are, but that is also a thing that gives me hope for the movie. The whole, like the, the glitter container with glitter lettering that says catnip. Like, I don't think, I don't think Tom Hooper gets it. Do you think Tom Hooper gets it fully? I don't think he does. You mean gets that it's silly? Or like, like, just like gets it in a sense of like the, the, the exact tone to take with this. I don't think he got it with Les Mis either. Uh, I mean, like, it's less pretentious than Les Mis yes, in and, that he doesn't get it. Right. I think so there are like, signs I, that, I'm that fine. he's closer to getting it here. I mean, Les Mis sort of invited that kind of self-seriousness, and I think he shot himself in the foot with has his insistence on doing those, like, super close-ups and live singing. The live yeah. singing in and of itself was, I think, one good I'm idea. I'm sorry. The finger quotes live singing. You will never convince <laughs> me that that wasn't patched in post. Sure. Yes. No, but I think I think me. mostly it was just, like, they sang on set, which was, like, right. a good idea in that, which like... plenty of musicals do. Mm, I mean, pl- maybe not for, like, huge numbers, but, like, they they tried to say that they invented this idea. Sure, sure. That is not true. Um, Anyway, but I think he shot himself in the foot with Les Mis in a few ways. And I think there are signs in this trailer, and I have to keep remembering that on a trailer level, Les Mis seemed amazing, too. So, sure. Okay. I will see this movie multiple times for different reasons. Like, one, potentially enjoying a substance. Um, (laughs) Another, um, like, to, like, see it with my niece. Or, like, because, like, one of the other things that makes me excited for this movie, and, like, I fully had this conversation with my sister the other day, is that, like, it Cats is different when you see it. Like, this sounds, like, maybe creepy. But, like, when you watch that show through the eyes of children, because people are like, what is Cats even about? What Cats is about is just, like, pure, unbridled imagination. Sure. Like, it's it's just play you know like it's it's like when kids just like are like we're gonna be cats while they're thrown in a backyard that's what this is but that's what the musical is like about creating but at the same time the language of the musical is so impenetrable to children like 
Do you know what I mean? But it doesn't matter because their eyes are so huge because they're watching cats they're watching dance cats. and right. be like these huge, broad archetypes. And it's like... I sent my sister the trailer, and my sister is younger than me, but not that young. She's, like, an adult person. She's, like, a fully functional adult person. But she doesn't really have any knowledge about Cats at all beyond the fact that, like, she knows there's a musical called Cats. So I sent that to her, and she just goes, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, exactly. And she goes, we are seeing this. Like, that was already, she went from, like, what the fuck is this to, like, sign me up. I am there. And so, like, that's going to be our Christmas holiday movie that we see together. And I can't wait. I do think that there is this degree in the culture where people don't fully understand the tone that people are taking with, like, whether it's making fun of this movie or being, like, outraged by it. Right. Because, like, they're, especially from people who don't know what Cats is, they're like, wait, what, you're into this? Like, you just made fun of it? Like, but at the same time, it's like, yes, we are earnestly baffled and beguiled by this monstrosity that speaks to us on a very deep level the thing i've been saying to people is it doesn't look good it doesn't look bad it's cats like it's it's neither yes nor no it's you know what i mean it it exists on its own there's some stuff in it that looks absolutely abysmal and there is some like beautiful stuff. I do think that this movie is ridiculous that it looks like Blade Runner 2049 yeah. for no reason. <laughs> like why is this happening? Like right. It's Denis Villeneuve's Tom Hooper's Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. I'm kind of into that though. I have to say. I don't know. I'm I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt for the moment. Also, Judy Dench looks fucking amazing. Okay, so can we talk about how, like, we've had listeners be like, I'm so bummed that you can't talk about this, or, like, I can't wait for you to talk about this. And, like, fully, we I will be shocked if we are able to do a Cats episode. No, it's going to get nominated for some things. I think it could get nominated for Judy Dench. You are more optimistic than I am in that regard, but I'm not ruling it out. I think Judy Dench and Ian McKellen are your best shots at nominations because they are both playing characters that play on their sort of their level of um, sort of stature in Hollywood, especially Ian McKellen, who is playing an old washed up theater cat who like his best days are behind him, but he's giving it one last sort of show for the for the for the other cats. And like. That could be very good for an actor who's, you know, been around the block like Ian McKellen has. And then Judy Dench, because she's, like, playing a role that's traditionally been played by a man, but is also, like, the beatific, like, you know, mother, sort of, like, earth mother cat now that, yeah. that, like, that she's imbuing into this role. I'm so up my ass about cats, I swear to God. But, like, (laughs) there's something to that. There could be something to that. The problem with Old Deuteronomy is I don't know if Old Deuteronomy has a moment in singing that, like, 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 Gus the theater cat gets a whole fucking number, right? Yeah, but, like, Old Deuteronomy is, like, a significant character and, yeah. like, is around. Like, there's so many shots of Judy Dench just, like, emoting. Like, yes. her looking at Grisabella singing and, like, having tears in her eyes, which is fully the most absurd shot in the thing because it's like why is judy dench so moved in this cgi makeup but Um, if you know the show you know why she's so moved you know what i mean they also all right we have to stop talking about cats in like five minutes but like less than that in one minute but like 
they really went full bore and like we're giving you almost all of memory including all of the good parts of memory in this trailer yeah. to get you to see it which is like probably what they had to do but it also means that like jennifer hudson's not going to have the element of surprise in she had this before, movie especially. with her big ballad which like is part of the reason why i don't think she has even like a shot at a nomination even though it like fits the anne hathaway mold of like you know the one big song moment it also fits the jennifer hudson mold of getting nominated for singing one big song i know she was better than that in dream girls don't start a dream girls argument right now i will yell at you but what i'm but you know what i mean right and like yes. i don't think she i think because they're front loading the trailers and the promotional stuff with memory i don't think you're going to be able to do that which is fine because i will say if there's anything in that trailer that consistently gives me uncanny valley it's jennifer hudson's look yeah, because that's the one that doesn't look like the person that's playing them. Grizabelle is not supposed to be the one with, like, the head-to-toe cat costume. Grizabelle is supposed to have a big old ratty fur coat and a ratty wig. And that is... That has traditionally I have to imagine with five months still for this movie to they be in post-production, I don't think this is fully the look. Like, I don't think that everything's fully baked yet. Well, we can hope. Um, anyway... We're gonna talk about cats several more times. On this. As I said to one of our, our one of our, uh, we'll have cats corner. We'll on talk Twitter, about cats once a week. Yeah, on Twitter, somebody box. was lamenting that we won't be. I think you, this is what you had started to get into. We're yeah. like, we're not going to be able to do an episode on cats because we think it's going to get nominated for something. But we're gonna hijack half of our podcast to talk about cats as we have right now. Yes, but now we will stop. Before we get into the Majestic, though, Chris, do you want to talk to our listeners about our upcoming mailbag episode? Yeah, so uh, we teased this on our last episode for Random Hearts. We're going to do our first ever mailbag episode. We have about a month to take your questions. So um, tweet at us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz or email us at had Oscar buzz at Gmail. No underscores in that. Um, send us any questions you have about uh, previous Oscar years, the current Oscar year, any trivia items you want to ask us about or our thoughts on. We're very excited to just like hear your guys' questions for us. Yeah, super, super excited to do that episode. We think it'll be a lot of fun. But now... <laughs> any cats questions or it's not. It's true. We're going to limit it. We're going to cap it at like two cats questions, but it'll be the best two. So really, you know... Yes. If right. you really have cats questions for us, make them stand out. We'll, we'll, we will elevate the right, the one best question to the to heavy the side heavy layer. Side layer. There, we go. there we go. We got it. All right. So, but for this week at long last, God, I really hope that like some people only came to hear about the majestic and we're just like, guys, shut, shut up about cats. <laughs> Finally, now you have gotten to our talk about the cinematic abomination that is Frank the Darabont's majestic. the majestic. Look. A new day has begun. That's true. We're We've been talking talk about, about cats for a day on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, The, the Majestic. Majestic. 2001's This felt the like an essential title to eventually get to. Yes. Had you seen this before? I had not seen this before. This was one that I had... This one was already kind of a disaster by the time it had made it to Buffalo. I don't think it, I don't think it had platformed, but it was a Christmas it release. Did not. And it released the same day as Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. So, like, my priorities were pretty well set at that point. So I did not see The Majestic. And by the time, well before I had would even have thought to see it, it was already... The reviews had been in, and it was a financial disappointment. And it was... I... It, the reviews were savage. Reviews were savage. So. The percentage on Rotten Tomatoes is actually not so bad. It's in the like 40s. 
But like the tenor of the bad reviews are really bad, and we'll definitely get into that. One in terms of picking the majestic, this one really stands out to me in like the upper echelon of like it's giving you marks in every category of what we want from a this head Oscar Buzz movie, which is that like it was very, very much centralized in the conversation of what's going to get nominated this year in 2001. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people really thought this one had cracked the formula on Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey had been knocking at the door for a while. Frank Darabont had his last two movies had been best picture nominees. Uh, the, the subject matter seemed very much like what, like catnip to, I mean, not to, you know, go cats again, but like catnip to the Academy. It was a movie about movies. It was a movie that casts Hollywood's, sort of like blacklist era in a very inspirational light it you know sort of saints this this screenwriter and also the like the old movie house culture it was everything that yeah. you wanted it was opening in december it was you know it's a movie that now fully does not seem to exist in 2019 like it has absolutely been absolutely not absolutely forgotten and it's also it's just it's the perfect this had Oscar buzz movie, I feel like. And I'm I'm excited to see to hear what you thought of it and what we, you know, make of it. Just to sort of run down the the boilerplate for it. This is, as we said, directed by Frank Darabont, written by Michael Sloan, who was Frank Darabont's like high school friend. We'll get into that. Starring Jim Carrey, Martin Landau, Laurie Holden, who was a big Frank Darabont favorite, Laurie Holden, and Jeffrey DeMunn, who were in this movie, who were both also in The Mist, who were both also in the the early days of The Walking Dead, back when Frank Darabont was um, attached to that show. Ron Rifkin is in this movie, Bob Balaban plays a villain in this movie, Hal Holbrook gets like dragged out of some musty trunk and just like propped up at the very end to be like the Alan Alda in the aviator of this movie. They ripped movie off happened. his uh, Mark Twain mustache and wig so that he could be in this movie. <laughs> exactly. It premiered December 21st, 2001. As I said, the same weekend, the same day, I'm pretty sure as the Lord of the Rings fellowship of the ring right before Christmas. Chris. Yeah. Are you prepared to give our listeners everything they've asked for when it comes to a plot description and a plot seconds. description of the majestic, a two and a half hour, yeah, nine that's the other million hour soul crushing experience. Yes. Are you ready? Yeah. Let's see what I can fit in there. All right. Your one minute begins now. All right, The Majestic takes place during McCarthy-era Hollywood. Jim Carrey's a screenwriter named Peter Appleton. He is uh, he's like a screenwriter for B-movies, but he ends up on McCarthy's list, and he's going to have a trial set to it, even though he only ever went to like a communist meeting in college to impress a girl. He's not really a communist. He considers himself apolitical. Anyway, so he like goes on a road trip to like you know deal with this, and he like gets in a car crash, and of course he wakes up with amnesia on the side seconds. of the road in this like small town that uh, he they confuse him for somebody who went away to the war and was never heard from again. Um, turns out that he eventually died. But there was also a theater called the Majestic that he was the son of the the dead man was the son of the theater owner and the theater closed Ten seconds. Um, because he is there. Ah, they revitalize the theater um, and then the old man dies. He's played by Martin Landau and then he eventually goes back to Hollywood to face trial and uh, like fights for the honor of veterans uh, yeah 
indeed fights for the honor of veterans and more there is quite frankly too much movie to be contained in 60 seconds and that is no shame chris that you weren't able to get to all of it i will say like there also kind of isn't like this is a movie with like maybe three very clear plots like three acts like it's the first act that's in hollywood and he arrives in the town and they confuse him for the other one the second act is they are um reopening the theater and uh uh, Martin Landau's character uh, was his name Harry. Sure, Harry something. Um, the father of the son that died. He dies. Harry and Trimble. Then, Jesus Christ. Of course. Um, and then the third act is they. He discovers while he is watching the film that they are playing as Harry dies. Um, he like they're screening his film and he can see. He like remembers who he is at that moment. And then, like, he has to go back to the court. And then the third act is, like, here he is facing McCarthy McCarthy hearings. And, like, his way of saying he's not a communist is, like, look at what you're doing to our veterans. Yeah, it's a very um, interesting sort of, like, post-9-11 pivot. I don't think they changed it before they made it. I'm pretty sure this movie was, you know, a done deal before 9-11 happened but it's interesting that they pivot from what you would what we've known to be the traditional argument in favor of people accused of uh being communists or communist sympathizers under mccarthy which is first amendment stuff um invasion of privacy stuff this is not how we treat American stuff and whatever. And this movie yeah. sort of head fakes that way, but then goes into just like our veterans deserve better than this. And it's like, Oh, sure. Absolutely. They do. Like, yes, they do. But this movie, the way that it is just like laying hard into that yeah. makes no sense. I want to talk about the movie within a movie for a second, because it doesn't get a whole ton of play. We see it a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end. Uh, it stars, among others, um, Bruce Campbell and, and Cliff Curtis, Cliff Curtis, which is cool to see. Like, I didn't I this might have been now the earliest movie that I think I've seen Cliff Curtis in, right? Maybe. I mean, he'd been around for a while. The movie within a movie, though, is the coolest part of this, or, like, the best Yeah, part I wish I had seen more of that. Uh, it stars also Amanda Detmer, who is one of those actresses who I always confuse for, like, three other actresses in that era of, like, early 2000s, where, like, I don't know if she was in Drop Dead Gorgeous, but she looks like about three other people who were in Drop Dead Gorgeous. She looks like um, she is in Drop Dead Gorgeous, but she also looks like Alexandra Holden, who was another actress mm-hmm. in Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's Alexandra Holden, right? Yes. Do you know who I'm I talking guess. about? No, I do not. Have you seen Drop I Dead Gorgeous? I was just confusing her for Simone from the movie Simone. No, that's somebody else altogether. I've never seen Simone. That's a computer. We should do Simone for this Maybe. for this podcast. But um and I also feel like there was an actress named Marissa Coughlin or something like that that also looked exactly like Amanda Detmer and Alexandra Holden and they were all sort of like in these movies, these sort of post-American Pie movies. Remember how like that became yeah, a whole genre like that of shit? was like a certain type of actress. Yes. Alexandra yeah. Holden was on, she was the one who was on Friends. She played Ross's girlfriend on Friends, whose dad I'm pretty sure was Bruce Willis. Do you remember that on Friends? 
Yeah, maybe, uh, I haven't watched an episode of Friends in a long time, but okay. that rings a bell. All right. Anyway, there's this whole cadre of... Also, Marley Shelton was sort of part of this cadre as well, because I think yeah. Sugar and Spice was a big thing around this time. Anyway, Amanda Detmer, good for her. I don't know if she's the one I like, but like she's one of the ones I like, so good. Yeah, that was interesting. That was fun. That was a little bit of... Um, I don't know. I think I would have liked more of that. The problem with The Majestic for me, mainly, is Amanda Detmer also in Saving Silverman. That's what I'm talking about when I mean the post-American pie kind yeah. of, you know. Down with, down on, is it down with you? Down, down to, to you. you yeah, boys and girls. Movies. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Those yeah, movies. totally. Anything that had, like, Jodie Lynn O'Keefe, sort of like, she's all that kind of was the end of that. Then all of a sudden everything became the post She's All That movies, mm-hmm. right? But like for a while there it was just like that was the American pie genre. Anyway. Yeah. Um I remember Amanda Pete and Saving Silverman being very fun. I don't know if that's right or wrong. I remember that being the movie that sort of got me on board with Amanda Pete. I remember her being better in that movie than that role should have been because I, think I remember that right. movie being like offensive oh i yes i think that's probably right i think that's right anyway i haven't seen any of those movies in forever um but the thing about the majestic i think it's fatal flaw is that like at some point it settles into this very leisurely pace Mm -hmm. and things happen it's not that things don't happen but nothing happens is in any way surprising once he sort of shows up on the shores of this town. And, like, I kept thinking of movies like Pleasantville and Big Fish, both of which take this sort of, like, small-town, idyllic, you know, setting and play it for a darkness or a contrast to, you know, everything we know about American life that has come since these movies. And this movie is just, you know, somewhat defiantly being like, no, we want to make a Frank Capra movie in 2001 and we're not going to make it dark and we're not going to make it ironic and we're not going to make it, you know, anything more than what it is. And it's like, cool, but if you're going to do You have to be interesting. You have to be interesting. Or at the very least, you have to be like, the most compelling version of this and like there are many things that i like jim carrey in and there are many sort of flavors of jim carrey that i like and it's not just the comedic stuff i do like when he plays against type but like this movie seems to have been like all right for jim carrey to play this role as the screenwriter who washes up in this frank capra town we just need him to do almost nothing we need to do like can you just like move as little as possible and speak as softly as possible and like he gives so little in this movie and i think it's because and darabont sort of talked about this well i i have the the ew fall preview from 2001 which i want to talk about in a second um but darabont talks in that about how he'd always really liked jim carrey and he always you know thought that carrey worked well even beyond the sort of antic you know, comedian yes. stuff, but that he thought he wanted to cast him in this if he could leave all the antics at the door. And it's like, it really does feel like that was the, that was the brief for Jim Carrey. It was just like, do 
none of that other stuff. And also... But it also doesn't allow him to, like, I don't know, base level be a person. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, uh, there's... Okay, can you give me three adjectives to describe Peter Appleton that has nothing... We're going to do the Star Wars prequel trilogy test. Can you <laughs> give me three adjectives to describe Peter Appleton that have nothing to do with the pl- anything he does in the plot or his profession? Like, nice-ish? You know what I mean? <laughs> Nice. Like, that's kind of it, right? He's nice. He seems fine. He doesn't seem like a bad guy, but also, like, that would have made him more interesting if there was a little bit of a dark side to him. But again, the Capra thing. Nobody was interested yes. in doing that. But here's my problem with the movie. Aside from the fact that it's, like, maybe one in every three scenes of the movie is fully unnecessary information for us to be watching. <laughs> right. Um and that like is why the movie is as long as it is and as boring and slow as it is. Yeah. But like it has, it's chasing this Frank Capra thing, or it's very much telling you that it is chasing a Frank Capra thing. Yeah. But it is more like it watched a half hour special on AMC about why we love Frank Capra movies. Then it actually like, I don't know, like is well versed in what makes us love Frank Capra movies. Can like, I tell you one thing that if you're interested in Frank Capra stuff that I would re- push you towards rather than the, the Majestic is Five Came Back on Netflix, which nobody absolutely. talks about anymore, which was from only like three years ago, right? Five Came Back is great. It's the documentary based on Mark Harris's book about Frank Capra, John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, and George Stevens, who are these, you know, five of the most prominent directors of their time who made movies around World War II that were in various ways influenced by the war. Some were propaganda movies for the war effort. Some were, they were embedded with the sort of airborne regiments. And and it's this fascinating story of the way that these directors in many ways sort of went to war and then came back from the war. And it's a lot more of a complicated portrait of Capra than something like the majestic which feels like it's that doesn't feel like it is sort of resting on this kind of popular uh conception of those movies at the time and if you look at or like what just happens in those movies like there's this whole thing about like small time small town america like yeah you know being one with a community but it's like you talked uh, i think you mentioned earlier how it's just like everything's just kind of nice in this and it's like that's not really what Frank Capra movies are like every Frank Capra movie is itself way more darker than the majestic ever is. oh totally like, I mean it's, it's a wonderful of... life is a movie about suicide and this one feels like it's right. mostly chasing like the like I guess archetypes of what it's a wonderful life is it's like, a wonderful life these, isn't like... just about suicide either it's a wonderful life is about like how the American promise of like success and prosperity runs counter to very simple things like a childhood injury do you know what i mean or like yeah. you know financial necessity it is a movie about how financial necessity has kept this one man from achieving this thing that this country has promised all of its all of its you know native sons essentially and and the majestic is about nothing it's it really kind of it's is. a movie about nothing and it's it, and it's funny because you look at the movie's origin story 
So I think to get into the why of this movie, why this movie came about, I think you have to talk about Frank Darabont for a second because his his story is kind of interesting where he's this like his parents were Hungarian immigrants and he was born like right after they made it to America pretty much. Um or right before they left. One of those things. Anyway, um, Hungarian immigrants. That's the important part of this thing. Fled, fleeing the uh, Hungarian Revolution. And makes it to America. He grows up in Los Angeles. He goes to Hollywood High School, which I always think is interesting. And they Wikipedia lists the year that he graduated. And I always think it's interesting. These people who grew up in Hollywood and grew up in Los Angeles and went to these kind of fancy sounding high schools and who who all like went to school together so has frank darabont's hollywood high class of 1977 classmate his most notable classmate was debbie rowe do you remember the woman who married michael jackson for a time oh god yes her that was the most prominent uh hollywood high school classmate of his he was a year behind charlene tilton from dallas if that sounds any more glamorous but anyway one of his first jobs after school was he worked at the egyptian theater in hollywood like there's there's a lot of stuff that kind of intertwines in here but so at high school he then met this i think it was a year a year ahead of him or whatever was this man named michael sloan and this was this you know sort of long time school friend of his and michael sloan is the guy who ultimately wrote the screenplay for the majestic and while darabont is filming um the green mile oh another interesting thing about darabont is so he's sort of he's going to school for filmmaking and he gets uh he becomes one of the dollar babies for stephen king have you ever heard of this where stephen king dollar would babies. offer student filmmakers the rights the sort of limited rights to oh yes 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 short yes, yes. films based on adapted from his short stories and he stephen sells king it has, to them for a dollar and like and and yeah he would sell the rights to them for a dollar they were not allowed to um distribute you know like publicly distribute them or make money off of them or anything like that but they can make we should also mention that this is frank darabont's only feature film not based off of a stephen king movie right or stephen king source right exactly well yes yeah exactly so he makes uh uh a short film based on stephen king's the woman in the room it almost gets nominated for an academy award for short films and it begins this relationship with him and Stephen King. Stephen King is obviously very impressed. They have this handshake deal where he gets, Darabont gets essentially like right of first refusal to make a movie based on Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which was a novella from an early, uh, one of Stephen King's earlier collection of novellas that was from the same collection that um, the story The Body was in, which ended up being made into Stand By Me by Rob Reiner. Um, Reiner also, I think this was a Castle Rock movie, right? I think Darabont's movies were all Castle Rock movies. Reiner, of course, um, is a voice in this movie. If you, yes. Uh, the, the opening thing where Jim Carrey is sort of being inundated by studio notes from these like unseen studio heads who don't get his stuff and they're trying to you know along with gary marshall and um i think carl reiner was one of them paul mazursky is one of them it's a bunch of these sort of like the the most recognizable voices are rob reiner and gary marshall you know naturally because they're the ones who we've seen in movies um so then darabont reiner almost makes the shawshank redemption with uh, wants to make it with tom cruise and Harrison Ford in the in the Morgan Freeman role, which 
really, I had to spend long minutes sort of imagining how that would have turned out. But Darabont ultimately decides, no, I want to make this my debut movie. He makes it. It's a box office disappointment and then ultimately gets rescued by the Oscars, gets like seven Oscar nominations. Darabont misses out on Best Director, but Shawshank gets Best Picture nomination. Morgan Freeman is nominated. And then it settles into this incredibly successful Life on Cable, where it plays became on like, everybody's dad's favorite movie right and like and i think because of that and also it became like the number one movie on imdb which everybody sort of like flipped out about and now you know totally uses to discredit imdb rankings to this day and i do too <laughs> but also i think that's led to i think i think nowadays i think shawshank redemption is underrated as a movie i think people brush it aside too easily i think it's a very well-made movie and i think for what it is and for you know, the kind of, I think it's the right adaptation for that story. I don't know. It's certainly a better Capra movie than this one is. Yes, kind of, yes. And then so five years... All of Frank Darabont's movies are better Capra movies than The Majestic is. So then five years later, he makes The Green Mile, which I think is a decidedly less successful movie than The Shawshank Redemption, but it's also a Best Picture nominee at the Oscars. Michael Clark Duncan gets nominated. Darabont again gets snubbed for Best Director. But then... Two years after, so then, so he makes as he's yeah. making the Green Mile, he says like he essentially frames it as like one day the script sort of ended up on my doorstep, and it was from his high school friend Michael Sloan, and it was called The Majestic, and it's literally the only movie script that Michael Sloan ever directed. Really, he wrote one mm-hmm. other movie um, called Hollywood Boulevard Two, which sounds abysmal. It's this oh my god, Hollywood Boulevard Two, Two, right. Uh, the summary on Wikipedia says a studio finds itself in the middle of a bizarre murder mystery when an exploding teddy bear kills the latest star. Soon more actresses get violently eliminated as the desperate search for the killer begins. It, I would watch that. It sounds terrible. Nobody you've ever heard of is in it. And is it was, this, is there a Hollywood Boulevard one or is this a Hamlet two? I'm going to get very, um, I'm going to get very Lucille Bluth and just say, I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it. I don't. <laughs> he also then, so later than that, after the Majestic bombs, he doesn't make, he doesn't write any other movies. He writes one episode of Mob City, which is another Frank Darabont television series. So it feels like his career is sort of attached to his old high school friend and very specifically attached to this movie, The Majestic, which is a huge failure. So that's sort of how the Majestic, and, and, and Darabont talks about how this was exactly the movie he wanted to make. He's always wanted to make a Frank Capra movie, and this was perfectly in line with that. And he, you know, got these visions of this grand movie house and yada, yada, yada. So, but I wanted to talk about very quickly before we, you know, continue on Darabont. The thing about him being two times snubbed for Best Director, which is not as common as you think. I thought it happened to Streisand, but she was not uh, a Best Picture nominee for Yentl. She was... Right. Um, sort of ran that snub for all it was worth, actually. Um, but she was snubbed for The Prince of Tides. But I, So in my looking back, in my little research, and somebody can call me on it if I missed one, but I don't think I did, since the 1980s, so 1980 and to present. Oh, no. Not counting the top 10 era, because that fucks this up. Um, so 1980 through 2008... Four directors have been snubbed, have been 
Best Picture nominated, but snubbed for Best Director twice this in their is career. Be the hardest game, right? So I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna help you out as much as possible. So it's all. It's, okay. So again, four men. Um, I I, I stopped in 1980 because like at some point, I I thought it was too mean to make you guess like. Norman Jewison for A Soldier Story <laughs> and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Right. And Martin Ritt for Sounder and Norma Ray. So, like, I'm being kinder than I could have been with this game. So, four directors, they each, you know, got the Snubola twice. One of them is Darabont, so you really only have to guess three. Oh, okay. So, one of them, hmm. both of his movies were in the 80s. The other two... Their, their director snubs came exactly 10 years apart, each of them. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yes. Um, not Barbara, obviously. No. Um, so the oldest one, we're going back to the 80s then. Yes. It's two, it's, this one is 1983 and 1988. Spielberg has to be one of Spielberg them. Spielberg is one of them. Can you, can you say what movies they are? Warhorse and... No, it's, it doesn't. I'm not counting the top 10 era. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So only well, only so through right. the years where there were five Best Picture nominees, which ends at, in 2008. Uh, the Spielberg movies would be... Well, I mean, the, in the 70s it happened. It happened once lines. in the 70s and once in the 80s. Oh, okay. Well, the 70s is Jaws. 70s is Jaws, right. 1975, the Jaws is 80s. a Best Picture nominee. The... Let's see. What got the directing nominee instead of him? It's... 1975, Jaws is a Best Picture nominee, and instead of him, it's Fellini. Fellini gets nominated for directing Amacor. They gave it to Fellini. Yes, famously. Famous video. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Track down that video where Spielberg gets like is on camera when he finds out that he didn't get a Best Director nomination and behaves like a brat. For the best achievement in direction, Federico Fellini for Amacord, New World Pictures, Stanley Kubrick for Barry Lyndon, Warner Brothers, Sidney Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon, Warner Brothers, Robert Altman for Nashville, Paramount. And Milo Schwartz. Oh, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I wasn't nominated. Uh, I got beaten out by Fellini. Uh, that's that's Fellini. Only for what? Best picture, best editing, best score, and sound. And that's it. That's it? Best screenplay? Nothing. Not even special effects. Not even special effects. Uh, oh. This is called commercial backlash. Right. I don't know if anybody knows the word commercial backlash, no, but when a film. When a film makes a lot of money, people resent it. Everybody, they do. Everybody loves a winner, right. but nobody loves a winner. <laughs> um, well, the other one, um, it's uh, b- 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 it's the color purple. It's the color purple. 1985, purple. the color purple, famously one of the like all-time most nominated, never won movies ever. So Spielberg yeah. gets the best picture nomination, the best director nod. So that year, Out of Africa wins. Other nominees in Best Picture, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Pritzi's Honor, Witness, all of those get Best Director nominations. Spielberg loses out, loses out in this case to Akira Kurosawa for Ron, which, like, yeah. if you're going to get snubbed for Best Director... Get snubbed to Fellini and Kurosawa, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could do worse. All right, um, so you got Darabont. You could be the people getting Spielberg. snubbed by Stephen Daldry. Yes. 
All right, so I'm back on thinking about the 90s. Now, my question, which might be helpful to me, the reason that you can get Steven Spielberg so early, it's such low-hanging fruit because there's so many nominations spread across Best Picture and Best Director for yes. him. Are the next two that I am guessing... Okay, I will. here's the hints that I will give you for the next two. All right, one of them ultimately is is a Best Director winner for a movie, you know, for another movie besides these two that he mm-hmm. was snubbed for. The other one is a director who doesn't really direct movies anymore nowadays, although he works on scripts. Like, wor- what do you mean works on scripts? Like he's a screenwriter or he's like a rehabber? Both. Mostly the, mostly the latter, mm. I would feel. It depends. I don't know. James L. Brooks. James L. Brooks is the one who is a Best Director winner. What are the two movies he got snubbed for? Um... As good as it gets. As good as it gets. Nineteen ninety seven was was uh, left out in favor of Adam Agoyan for the Sweet Hereafter. Yes, which um, honestly I'm fine with. Adam Agoyan is very is does very very well with the Sweet Hereafter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, was he snubbed for broadcast news? He was snubbed for broadcast news, which I oh go to hell. Utterly, utterly flips me out. It was in favor of. Do you want to know who? A director who we've done for this had Oscar buzz. Someone like Clint Eastwood? No. Who's done a lot of movies? Um, is this going to make me mad? Yeah, probably. Although, I don't know. you. I don't think you've seen this movie, and I certainly haven't. So we can't say for sure. And I think at the time, he didn't have the uh, the reputation that he has now. It's Lassa Hallstrom. Uh, oh, My Life, for my is, life a is a Dog. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's... Yeah, broadcast news. Give it to broadcast. Give it to broadcast. Um, yes. All right. So now you're waiting for one more. This guy's nominations, or lack of nominations, were 1983, 1988. He doesn't really direct anymore. Um, hmm. He's never been nominated for best director though, which is like kind of too bad because he's had you know multiple best picture nominees. And I'm I'm gonna know this. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's definitely a name you know. He's not like he's not one of your favorite directors. I don't think you really have much of an opinion on him as a director, but like is it it can't be like John Madden. No. No, before John Madden for sure. Okay. Hmm. But you said 1998. No, 88. 83 and 88, both in the 80s. Okay. Um, one of the movies is hugely remembered today. The other one is more of a footnote, although it's a footnote that got a acting win for somebody. Footnote that got somebody an acting. I don't win? think it's a good. Mo- I don't think either of them are good movies. Although the first one is at least like a frustrating movie that became part of the culture. Like it's definitely. Uh, is it um? Bruce Beresford? No, you would think. And no, yet, that's no. yeah. Beresford was snubbed um, for Driving Miss Daisy, which ended up winning, but that's his only time he's uh, had a Best Picture nominee that he wasn't nominated for. Okay, so eighty-three. He's uh, snubbed in favor of. Oh, this was a three for five year, but he was snubbed in favor of Mike Nichols and Silkwood for Silkwood and Ingmar Bergman for Fanny and Alexander. Ugh. God, two amazing movies. Um, yeah. Uh, what? Oh, what's his name? Because I, 
I think was the Big Chill a Best Picture nominee? Yes, it was. Is this the director? Yes. I hate that movie. Yeah. And then in 1988, uh, bah, bah, bah. he's Lawrence Kasdan. It's Lawrence Kasdan. Yes. Ugh. Who in Big 1988 Chill is a mean movie. What's the 1988 movie? God. Um, Won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Like Grand Canyon or something? No, he directed Grand Canyon uh, in 93, I want to say. And that got a screenplay nomination, but it did not get Best Picture. Um, it won what? Supporting Actress. In the late 80s. In the late 80s. Actress We Love, a performance very few people have seen. And it's fine. The year after? the last empire or emperor which is also fine um <laughs> is that the year gina davis won? It's gina davis what's the movie the accidental tourist the accidental tourist right that's an impossible question it's a very difficult question and you did very well so i'm very proud of you um well, thank you that that movie he was snubbed in favor of charles Crichton for a fish called wanda which is one of my favorite Lone director nominations because you hardly ever see cool. comedy rewarded comedy. in that way. And good for yeah. them. Yes. All right. Hurrah. So thoughts on Frank Darabont. What are you what are where are you on his sort of genre? I'm I'm more fond of him probably than I should be because I'm such a fan of Stephen King. Yeah. I mean those movies are so like watchable, even if you have problems with them. I think even the Green Mile is still really watchable. I mean, you want to talk about a Frank Capra movie, that is a Frank Capra horror movie. Like Yeah. Um And what a concept I mean, that is. Right. But I don't know. I mean I don't really have a I guess I kind of see him more as even though like he doesn't have a lot of movies and they with the exception of the mist all really have some type of Oscar narrative to them. I see him more as like a studio director because he only makes these expensive movies that like this is probably the only one that's never made money and will never see like the financial black. Right. But I don't know. I mean, I guess there is a certain directorial stamp that's even present in this movie. So it's not like he is this anonymous voice. But I don't know. I mean, like it's tough to it's tough it, to read too much. It's interesting. All of, all of his career seems to be trying to channel one sort of definitive voice or another, vibe. right? Where it's like Stephen yeah. King for the majority. And then in this one, it's just like he's trying to surrender himself to Capra. And it does give you the sense that he doesn't have a ton of sort of not not such a stamp on his own. That he's a conduit. He's a conduit. He's director. definitely like, I don't know, chasing a certain mood and vibe that isn't all that common even in like 90s cinema. Right. Um, that does feel very old-fashioned and sentimental and, like, kind of maudlin. This movie is maudlin as hell. I feel like it even bypasses maudlin. I don't think it lets you linger on any kind of, like, sadness for very long or any kind of, like... I think it's more so, like, we you just watch it and you don't feel anything yeah. that, rather than, like, it doesn't... It does linger on, like, sadness and, like, yeah. a nostalgia, but, like... It's just not good enough for you to feel anything from it. Yeah. All right. I've been talking a lot. Do you want to talk about... Talk about Jim Carrey? Talk about Jim Carrey. And especially why in 2001 it really seemed like it could be Jim Carrey's time. 
Well, at this point, Jim Carrey had already had several, um, like, close calls with Oscar. Two I mean, major probably, ones, yeah. yeah. Definitely pretty close with The Truman Show, close-ish with The Man in the Moon, even though people didn't like that movie necessarily. He won Globes for both of them. Yeah, I mean, he was a double Globe winner. Here's my thing about Jim Carrey that, like, I don't think I realized at the time, but now I have some questions about it because he, his rise was so fast. Oh, yeah. Like... Those three movies that happened in 1994, nobody really talks about how they all happened at once. That Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber were all in 1994. After essentially coming out of Only in Living Color. And he became huge from that. And then the next year, you have him playing the Riddler and um, the Ace Ventura sequel which like is crazy to think that that sequel happened that fast and then he got the 20 million dollar payday for the cable guy in 96 which so, was like, already already his like backlash movie two years yeah, yeah. so it's like in the span of two years he's making 20 million dollars per movie which was that the most at the time i if it wasn't it the most it was like there. like the up there. He would have been like the first comedy actor to get those type of pages. I remember there being headlines about how much money he was making in movies and like only he and like Julia Roberts made those kind of headlines. Yeah. And like of course the cable guy was the one that had the backlash. It's a weird, very dark movie. I think it's kind of great. I don't know um, if I would say great, but it's very much the most Ben Stiller Ben Stiller movie. Yeah. Whereas like reality you haven't... reality bites is like Ben Stiller keeping sort of a lot of his demons at bay, I feel like. I think there's a lot of... Ben Stiller as a filmmaker reminds me a little bit of Danny DeVito, and it's just like, there's a lot of anger in you, isn't there? And like, (laughs) that we don't really get from your acting necessarily. But The Cable Guy is an angry little movie, and a dark, dark movie. And I I don't think it fully succeeds. It's not a movie I ever seek out to revisit it's definitely a movie that you can understand a lot more on rewatch what it's going for than at the time because at the time it's very kind of antithetical to what jim carrey was getting known for it's also Um, an essential text in the matthew broderick de-evolution sort of narrative (laughs) that goes from you know your matthew broderick cool guy to matthew broderick cuck right where it goes from Ferris Bueller and that sort of era, um, I guess your sort of midpoint is one of those, like, The Night We Never Met, that was him, right? Something. Something like that. And then it's Cable Guy, uh, Election, You Can Count On Me. Right. Yeah, but the fact that, like, Liar Liar is Jim Carrey's comeback movie in 97. Three years after he emerged. And then The Truman Show is his reinvention the next year. It's a very short period of time and like a lot of he a lot of his movies that were popular were like not made with like Hollywood insiders like he has was it Tom Shadyak was his partner on multiple movies of those I believe that's who directed Liar Liar yeah yes and like it's a really short time period and mm. I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that he got those globes but still missed the Oscar nominations and like there was 
all of the talk like Tommy Lee Jones hated him right. and hated working with him. Well, did you like, watch? So was he partly a Hollywood outsider? But like we've talked about this with like John Cusack on several occasions. Did people not like Jim Carrey? Well, did you see the documentary on Netflix from no, a I year or so that. ago about him sort of making in, man on the moon, making man on the moon and internalizing Andy Kaufman to a point that was like unsettling to like even Milos Forman and um it does it does seem like it gave me the impression that like working on a movie with Jim Carrey would be a lot would just yeah. be a lot and but yet he seems to be somebody somebody must like him cuz he does keep you know getting work and maybe that's just a, a remnant of just like he made so much money at one point and maybe he could again mm-hmm. and he made a lot of money really fast on very cheap movies yes with the exception of batman but batman's its own thing well but batman still for an expensive movie still made a ton of money yeah second biggest box office movie of that year um but like coming off of those two big snubs and uh, also simon birch <laughs> um wait was he simon birch He's adult uh, Joe Mazzello. Oh, oh, God. I didn't even yeah, think Yeah, he, like, stands in the breeze while some fall we leaves can't put blow Simon by Birch him. on him, though, can we? No, I, I was just saying it as a joke. Yeah. What's interesting, I think, is everything that I think Darabont wanted to do with Carrie in terms of turning down the volume on the antics and bringing out something human and relatable in him is what he does in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Absolutely. I think that's his most successful performance. I think, as much as I think he's phenomenal in The Truman Show, and The Truman Show is the movie that like capitalizes on everything about comedy Jim Carrey in a way that makes him a successful, that makes for a successful dramatic performance, I mm-hmm. think it's incredible. But I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind might be his most impressive performance in that like he really does he calls upon almost nothing of what we knew of him as a successful actor and and it doesn't feel like a void it doesn't feel like yeah. the absence of Jim Carrey in that movie it feels like something else and he's so um relatable in that movie and in a character that especially looking back on it from 2019 with 2019 eyes could have been um, really nice, you know, nice guy-ish. I think that movie sort of yeah. grapples with the nice guy stuff of Joel in that movie. And I think he doesn't uh, shy away from that. And he doesn't sort of like beg for our sympathy or assume our sympathies in a it's way. It's an authenticity thing because like there's a, as much as I do actually like Jim Carrey as a performer, like I think I'm a certain age where it's like, it's a prerequisite that I have to right. kind of um, like whenever he's dealing with like some type of emotion or like sentiment, it there's a falseness to a lot of it yeah. that is not the case for eternal sunshine. And it feels very much like a real authentic person you would see every day. Yeah. Um, dealing with these emotional states. I would love to talk to Kate Winslet about what it was like working with him on that movie. You wonder if she, like, because, like, she's her own force of nature in that movie. Like, you yeah. wonder if he deferred to her a certain amount. He would, and, he like, would almost have to. Kind of followed her lead. Yeah. yeah like, it's it, it makes you wonder if it was that he had this, like, really, like, all-out performer because like probably up until that point i would say his best performance is 
maybe it's the Truman Show, but it's also Dumb and Dumber, which he is right. sparring off of Jeff Daniels. So it's like, yeah. Jim Carrey's so used to like doing his own thing that like when he's up against somebody who is yeah. working as hard as he is, it's better. I hate that Dumb and Dumber has been devalued by like weird spinoffs and sequels and stuff like that. And that like people forget what and an animated show and, right <laughs> but like what a miracle of sort of being the movie you're meant to be that movie is where like yeah. they fully invest in the concept of that movie it never feels gross with there's so much grossness in that there's like there's gross stuff in dumb and dumber but it never you never feel bad for there's this weird it, sweetness it. to it there's a weird sweetness like, it to has it. booger jokes there's such and a it's commitment still, like, cute there's such a commitment on the part of carrie and daniels you really they really sell the relationship between them it's a really genuinely very good movie it is the better movie for peter farrelly to like if if one of his movies had to have won the oscar for best picture it should have been dumb and dumber <laughs> is what Agreed. i would say all right. There, I think there's all like I just I really wonder what the sense of goodwill or badwill towards Jim Carrey was, particularly with this movie that everybody loathed, because it's like it felt ultimately so transparent. What like people forget that it was just like what does Jim Carrey have to do to get nominated for an Oscar at this point, and this felt purely like it was an attempt to do that. Part of it is also the fact that '98 Truman Show wins the Golden Globe in such an upset. So the narrative going into that Golden Globes was it's going to be Ian McKellen or Nick Nolte and essentially flip a coin. And then Carrie wins essentially a split vote, what I would imagine is a split vote, in very similar fashion to what I remember the case being when Adrian Brody won in 2002, Mm -hmm. which was it's either going to be Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt or... Daniel Day-Lewis for Gangs of New York and essentially flip a coin. And Adrian Brody was sort of riding the hot hand. The pianist was at its most sort of buzzy at that moment. It peaked at the exact right time and he won. And so I think Jim Carrey for The Truman Show did the same thing. Ian McKellen was in Gods and Monsters and Nick Nolte was in Affliction. And both of those were like hugely acclaimed performances by great actors who had never won. And so everybody assumed it would be one of the two. And then Carrey rides up the middle and every then all of a sudden it's just like wow that's something to think about what a cool narrative this would be and there was real thought of because remember when carrie accepted that award wait i'm trying to remember the the yes because he said it's going to be so hard for me to talk out of my butt after this the nominees for best performance by an actor in a motion picture drama are jim carrey in the truman show stephen fry wild Tom Hanks, Saving Private Ryan, Ian McKellen, Gods and Monsters, and Nick Nolte in Affliction. And the winner is Jim Carrey. This is serious. going to be so hard to talk out of my ass after this uh. and the year before that when jack nicholson won his golden globe for um as good as it gets one of the other nominees was jim carrey for liar liar and nicholson do you remember that where like nicholson like turns around and does the like talking out of his butt thing to like 
to like shout out to Jim Carrey. It's like it was this weird like Hollywood sort of like full circle moment. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, cool. Jim Carrey would be an amazing Oscar uh, narrative. This is going to seemingly going to happen. And that fully got usurped by Roberto Benigni for Life is Beautiful, where all of a sudden he then took over the role as spoiler for McKellen and Nolte. Carrie gets snubbed entirely, left off the ballot, and it's Benini who rides up that third rail and gets the win for Life is Beautiful and something that, like, Hollywood immediately regretted. Like, I have seen... The second he was standing on that chair, they regretted it. George Bush's election in 2004 and Roberto Benini winning the Oscar in 98 are the two instances that almost immediately, maybe Brexit as well, but like almost immediately everybody was like, wait, what? No. Like, why did we do this? You have just called Roberto Benini the Brexit of the Oscars. I stand by that. Let's revote today. Um, no, but I, 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 I feel, so it feels especially cruel to Jim Carrey that he was cast aside and saw his you know his narrative go to somebody that immediately hollywood was just like no why did we do that Ugh. and man on the moon was a different story man on the moon he won the globe but it was the comedy uh actor globe and i don't think he was ever that seriously in consideration for an oscar nomination after the globes but but it felt like this building thing yeah at least towards a nomination after the truman show right right and and it never happened and now i don't know if it's ever going to happen you you, you always you know there's always it the possibility happen. because he was such a big star that at some point there's a comeback narrative awaits anybody who was as big of a star as jim carrey right, right. so it's always possible but i just don't at the, at this point in time he's not making the movies he's not he's not making those you know playing he's not making movies period for the most part unless you want to like start the buzz now for him playing dr robotnik next year i do not (laughs) there does seem to be like a building like resurgence because of that show kidding that he's on right now like it doesn't seem impossible but like but he's also kind of off his rocker in a way that isn't fun right yeah is the other thing and it makes you wonder if people really want to work with him right right so, alas. Do we want to talk about the post-9-11-ness of this movie? Yeah, I mean, what we talked about 2001 in uh, our writing, with cards, writing in Cards with Boys episode. Um, the People forget, like, people didn't really want to go to the movies after 9-11 right. for a long time in a way that it's like, Harry Potter got people in there for in like a blockbuster sense, but like As did the in Lord a way of the Rings, that right, yeah. Well, but I was gonna say Lord of the Rings is the one that like kind of captured our emotion in the way that like mm-hmm. we could go to a movie and feel optimistic about what was going on around us, yeah. And like, I, I it's probably bad timing, but like, who cares? The movie is bad with the majestic, and that like I can see somebody going to see that movie. And, like, thematically what it ends up saying, just being like, what? You know, just for the time, like, how dare you do this to our troops that he does at the end? That it's like, but it feels like the movie is aligning itself to a certain nostalgia for middle America that feels very out of sync with what the movie is politically trying to say, if it's trying to say anything. Um yeah, it's, it's and like maybe now we're more prone to be like absolutely not screw you, 
um, when it's like inconsistencies with what you're approaching things with. Yeah. But like, I feel like on top of it already being very lethargic and like, I can't imagine sitting for two and a half hours on Christmas day to watch this movie. But like what you're left to think about, of course people kind of hated this movie at this time. At the same time that Lord of the Rings was happening and, like, right. making people think about, like, togetherness and, like, fighting forces of evil, I guess, and, in a way that felt like people were coming together for something. And December of 2001 was a, such a battleground anyway, and that, like, in terms of both successes and failures, were, like, almost everything that year. Like, Moulin Rouge was a, was a Best Picture nominee that had opened earlier in the year, and In the Bedroom had existed since Sundance, but otherwise, like, so much opens at the end of the... Wait, before we get into 2001, though, I want to talk about, because I've got this EW issue in front of me. The fall preview yeah. from 2001. On the cover is Cruise and Cruise. Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruise from Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky. Which, again, is one of the December failures of 2001. And that was, like, immediately coming on the heels of Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, which just missed Best Picture, and a lot of people thought, well, now he's got Tom Cruise... And it's going to happen, and it decidedly did not. So, which what we've done with earlier EW fall preview issues when we've talked about them in on this podcast, I want to have you guess who the top, you know, the top rung sidebar is on the cover of EW. This one only has four photos because there's a little text in the middle of it. Only four photos, mm. and I'm going to give you categories for each one. Oh. And that's going to be your only hint. And I want to see how well you can do, like, reasoning this out. Only hint for, like, a reasonable amount of time and then whatever. Can I get all of the categories at yes, once? Yes, that's what you're going to get. Okay, fabulous. Okay, these four photos. One is a movie that was nominated for Best Picture. One mm-hmm. was a movie that was nominated for Oscars but not Best Picture. One is a movie we have discussed on this had Oscar buzz. And one is a movie that had no business being on the cover of this movie, of, of this issue. Okay. Uh, Best Picture nominee has got to be A Beautiful Mind. It's not. Not A Beautiful Mind. Okay. Uh, Lord of the Rings? Nope. Okay. Um, is it in the bedroom? It's not. Okay. <laughs> uh, what else is left? Gosford Park? Nope. Okay. So literally the only one I haven't guessed then. Which is Moulin Rouge. Which doesn't make sense, because why? Because it opened in July? Right. Is it is it Nicole Kidman it, from Moulin Rouge, but it's for another movie? It's not Moulin Rouge. It is not Nicole Kidman either. It is a movie that is not Moulin Rouge. But I named all the Best Picture nominees. Of this year, yes. <gasps> oh, so it got pushed. It's Gangs of New it's York. Gangs of New York. It's Gangs of New York, which at this point was slotted for December of 2001 and was a big old... Famously was like four hours long. Big old feature in this fall preview. And then after this went to publish, it got pushed, I believe, first to summer 2002, right? Right. Or am I thinking of Titanic? When they probably thought they could get it at Cannes. But anyway, yes. So this was before it got pushed. Sorry to play that little bit of trickery on you, but I think it's a really interesting little footnote. Mean man. All right. All right. So my other categories, one that had Oscar nominations, not Best Picture. 
and then one that has no business being there, and what's the other one? One that we've covered on this at Oscar Buzz. Okay, so what other 2001 movies did we do? Besides Riding in Cars with Boys, I bet Riding Riding in Cars with Boys was not on there. Or was Riding in Cars with Boys on there? Riding in Cars with Boys was on there. Drew Barrymore. Okay, Riding in the right side of this of You know, this that's actually, I should have just guessed that simply because Charlie's Angels. Drew Barrymore for Riding in Cars with Boys, Leonardo DiCaprio for Gangs of New York. That is the right-hand side of this bar. What is on the left-hand okay. side? Oh, these categories are going to make me guess things that I wouldn't have guessed because I really would have guessed that Ocean's Eleven would have been on there. It's not. Two huge movie stars, I will say. One in, like I said, an abomination of a movie, and one in a movie that got several oscar nominations at least two um yeah but not best picture is the several oscar nominations harry potter no mm. bigger bigger nominations than what harry potter got acting nominations. okay acting nominations hmm uh, royal tenenbaums no but that's a good no guess. that doesn't have an acting nomination didn't get acting nominations Idiot. But that would have been a good Um, pick for the cover. This, I'm pretty sure, was also a December movie. Okay. Hmm. It is a movie from a director neither one of us is all that fond of, but other people are very fond of. (gasps) Is it Will Smith for Ali? It's Will Smith for Ali. Yes. It's Will Smith for Ali. All right. So your last one, big movie star in a terrible movie that was not in any way part of the Oscar conversation ever. Because the movie's so bad? Well, and also because of the genre. Even if the movie was good, it wouldn't have been an Oscar movie. Oh, okay. Um, I will say, the photo of the movie's write-up when you get into the issue is, like, one of the more offensive. Like, it's... Oh, wow. It makes my blood boil, honestly. It's such a bad movie. Oh my god. It is also I... from uh it's made the filmmakers we discussed literally moments ago. For a movie uh... that we said was really great. But I thought you said we hate these filmmakers. We do, but but we l- thought that they were great 5 minutes ago. We mentioned that the one movie that they made was, like, actually flawless and should be the movie that they're best remembered for. Oh, The Farrelly's. What the hell did they make in 2001? With a big ol' movie star who had already won an Oscar. Already won an Oscar. It's not stuck on you. In a truly... It's Shallow Hal. It's Shallow Hal. Fuck that movie. Fuck that movie. It's the photo of her in the fucking canoe, and the other end of the canoe is up in the air because she's playing this big old fat lady. It's truly, it's everything that's bad about Gwyneth Paltrow is that movie. Is the unself-awareness, is the, like, ability to sort of try and rationalize her way out of something that's super offensive. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it a lot. I can't believe it's one of the four cover movies for this fall preview. Is she on the cover or is Jack Black on the cover? Okay. 
Gwyneth, Will Smith, Drew Barrymore, Leo DiCaprio. Those are your four. Plus Cruise and Cruise. Plus that Cruise makes Cruise. sense. That's your fall preview for 2001. And weirdly, that was not <laughs> Ali's really the only is the only one of those movies that was a 2001 Oscar player. So truly, they missed the mark on a lot. Yeah, I will say. Vanilla Sky's uh, an Oscar winner. No. Original song. Nope, that didn't win original song. Oh, it didn't? It was nominated. Whoops. It was McCartney. I think a lot of people thought it would because it was coming on the heels of Bob Dylan winning for Wonder Boys. And people were like, oh, okay. And now McCartney is going to win his Oscar because he's a music legend. And this would have been the year Randy Newman won, finally, for Monsters, Inc., yes? No. No? Mm, I don't think he won that. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, look that up. Yeah, he won. Never mind. Yes. <laughs> it was him. It was Ma- okay. It was so, McCartney for Vanilla Sky. Was this like my funny friend? Sting. Was that that year? Uh, here's the nominees. Okay. Enya for Lord yes, of the Rings. May, may it, it be. be. Yes. Uh, Randy Newman won for If I Didn't Have You for Monsters Inc. Uh, this should have. This would have been a great Diane Warren Oscar for Pearl Harbor. There you'll be Faith Hill. I agree. I'll keep I agree a with that. part of you with me. Yep. I like that song. Everywhere I go, though, you'll be. Um, Vanilla Sky, Paul McCartney, and Until Sting from what? Kate I knew it was a Sting song. It's Until. I was confusing it with My Funny Friend and Me, which I think is from Road to El Dorado, Emperor's New Groove, Man, something. If people didn't hate Pearl Harbor so much, Diane Warren maybe could have had that on. Yeah, people hated Pearl Harbor, though. That's the thing. All right. So I want to just delve into a little bit. We've talked about how this movie got terrible reviews. I want to mention a couple of them because I always like reading scathing quotes from reviews. One of them, Todd McCarthy at Variety. This movie, by the way, just opened on December 21st. It didn't play a festival. It didn't have a rollout. It just opened. It's surprising. Died. It's a big Warner Brothers movie. But it's one of those movies that you could see them sort of like keeping under wraps and being just like, wait till you see it. Yeah. Uh, Todd McCarthy <laughs> at Variety like, yes. called it a thick slice of bogus inspirational cheese, which Correct. love it. Charles Taylor at Salon said, it's one of those movies that makes you feel as if the national IQ was dropping while you're watching it. <laughs> which is savage. <laughs> I mean, mine was. Ebert liked it along the lines of what we a were talking lot. about with the post 9-11 thing in that he essentially saw it as a rebuke to what was already shaping up as the sort of George W. Bush era post 9-11. We're going to go in and, you know, and take out all our enemies in the Middle East kind of thing. He wrote, in an age of Rambo patriotism, it is good to be reminded of Capra patriotism to remember that America is not just about fighting and winning, but about defending our freedoms, which, yes, is... A nice sentiment. I don't think the majestic is interesting enough to earn it, but Ebert's Ebert. And I'm not I think gonna... it's like it's a little muddled in that bullshit. Like I kind of have a hard time believing that this like, like literally the love interest at one point is like it doesn't matter if you're a communist, and it's like I don't think Middle America. Yeah, that nice that white lady false. would be saying it doesn't matter if you're a communist. She was like she was. Uh, they they make pains to to remind you that like. This woman is educated. She's getting, She just got a law degree. So, like, I can maybe see it from that level of, you know, of a character. But it feels pretty pat to have 
you know, this small town person just lay out this like, you can be a communist if you want to. This is America. And I'm just like, that really was not a sentiment being expressed exactly. in America at the time. Ebert also called Jim Carrey. He said he has never been better or more likable, which like the Truman Boy. Show was only three years, three years prior to this. I can't imagine never has been better after watching this performance. It is just a dud of a performance and sorry. Quite. <sighs> it opened opposite the Lord of the Rings, December 21st. It uh, Ultimately, it opened number eight. Nobody wants to open the weekend that Lord of the Rings is opening, but it did. And even on a per-screen level, it per-screen per numbers were below Not Another Teen Movie, which was Chris Evans' introduction to America, including his cute little America's bump. ass covered in whipped America's cream. America's ass covered in whipped cream. Exactly. I think we all remember where we were when we first saw that, but... Um, so per screen numbers were below not another teen movie and below week six of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So it opened on like 2000 plus screens though. And you know, not, I think we need to beware these like wide, but not very wide Christmas releases that look like movies for your dad. It still feels like every year we're tinkering with like what to do and what not to do in terms of releasing movies at the end of the year. And sometimes it's just sort of like we are very success, like results oriented and that like whatever works is apparently the right thing to do and whatever doesn't work is the wrong thing to do. But it still is fascinating to me, the the logic of to platform or to not platform, to open before December or, you know, in late December to do a qualifying release or not. And I mean, this couldn't have survived a platform release. No, no, I I just think at some movies you're not going to be able to sneak past i think this is yeah possibly unsalvageable it won very few awards it won an award for its location scouting which sure it's a beautiful town um beautiful is it the same group that we talked about in our girl on the train episode i don't think no, so. that was like the state of new york and the majestic one for the state of the California. <laughs> California. Right, this was the California-specific on-location awards. It also won an award from the Political Film Society of the United States. And it sure. was the category of the Political Film Society Award for Democracy, which is as lofty as you can get. The Majestic wins. It uh, beats, among other things, Antitrust, the Ryan Philippi. Ryan Philippi, who are the other two women on this poster? Who do you want to guess? Uh, Rachel Lee Cook and is it Claire Forlani? It's Claire Forlani, well done. Directed by Shout out to our um, what's that? Meet Joe Black episode. Yeah, it's available to watch on Prime Video if you want to watch. Tim Robbins, uh, speaking of Frank Darabont faves, is in that movie as well. Um, I looking through the nominees for the Political Film Society. There's a lot of stuff that I've never heard of, including something called Bread and Roses, which is a Ken Loach movie which seems like prime opportunity for a political film society nominated in all categories. As far as I can see though, is uh, this movie called Lumumba, which was about the Congolese independence uh, leader uh, Lumumba, which is directed by Raul Peck, whose name might be familiar to you. If you saw the documentary, I am not your Negro about James Baldwin a couple years ago. And if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. You should. It is great. Do we have anything else we want to talk about before we're, we've been talking for for a good while? 
Anything else uh, you want to throw in? Not that I can think of. This is so far removed from the actual Oscars that, like, there's nothing really even in the Oscar race to necessarily bring this up in, like, except for maybe Best Actor, just to, I don't know. But, like, this movie looks so cheap that, like, you couldn't even fathom once you watch it, like, it being nominated for, like, a production design no. award or costuming. I wanted it's, so like, much more out of that movie theater. It just looked yeah. like it looked small. You know what I mean? It's just like it's wild to me that like Which is fine because it's like small town America, but like if it doesn't have a neon light on it, it is not impressive in any degree. Well, but also you're like when I looked up movie... the budget for this movie, I was shocked that it was as expensive as it was. Yeah, seventy two million. Because it looks like a Hallmark channel. Budget movie. was seventy two million, it made twenty seven, which is not the kind of inverted numbers you wanna see. No. Um, yeah, but I thought if you're going to name your movie The Majestic and you're going to make like the crux of the movie the refurbishment of this great movie palace and we're going to, you know, ask us, ask us to believe in the power of the movies again and yada, yada, yada. This movie really like hits all those buttons in terms of Hollywood movies about Hollywood. But I'm like, I want the the reveal of this movie palace to be truly eye popping and special and whatever. And it just feels very humble in not the good way wrote yeah like it should be one of the emotional like peaks of the movie or like like it should at least stand out like stylistically in some way but it's like it's literally just a neon light yeah all right do we want to play the imdb game yeah let's do the imdb game tell the children Okay, so the IMDb game, we end all of our episodes with this game where we challenge each other to name the top four titles that IMDb and their elusive algorithm says an actor or actress is most known for. Um, We will give each other the hints if we get uh, two wrong guesses of the years of the remaining titles. After that, it's kind of a free-for-all of hints. Otherwise, we try to avoid the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Harry Potter. Those kind of, like, float to the top. But, like, as our listeners have pointed out, not always. Perhaps what I have for your challenge, Joseph, is not always. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. All right. Do you want to give or receive first? Uh... I'm going to give first. I think I've been guessing first lately. All right. All right. As I hinted to you, I have a Marvel Cinematic Universe um, person for you. I originally was going to give you Matthew Broderick, but because we, like, literally listed four of the titles that um, (laughs) we're his known for, I figured, you know, maybe I'll find someone else. Um, One of my favorite nominated performances this year um, is by an actress we all know and love. Who is wonderful? Her name is Marissa Tomei. Love her. Love her. All right. Marissa Tomei. My cousin Vinny's got to be there. My cousin Vinny. All right. You said no Marvel or one Marvel? No Marvel. Okay. I will give you that. Justice for Aunt May and her hip huggers in the new Spider Man movie. Her wardrobe in that film is astounding. I still have to catch up to it. When you do, come talk to me about that. She is wearing these, like, real hippie jeans in a way that I adore. And I mean, like, hippie as in, like, flower children. Like, it's very, like, the movie is is on its own sort of, like, trip, you know, fashion-wise. But she is having her own adventure and living life and loving it. And and I'm happy for her. Hopefully they, like, give her some, like, really fabulous glasses. I have this thread in my mind where, like, nobody wears glasses like Marissa Tomei does. Is that just because of the shades anyway. in, in Vinny? 
I mean, it's the shades and everything. Follow her on Instagram. Yeah. All right. Trying to think of like, do I fall in the trap? Because both of her other Oscar nominated roles are for pretty low box office films. Hmm. I don't know. I can't give you hints. No, yet. no, you no. I know. And the other thing is, it's audience. almost all supporting performances for her from like late '90s onward. It's, but it's a lot of like she's very briefly in What Women Want or in like a thankless role in in Crazy Stupid Love. Both of which movies that I feel like pop up on this a lot. Okay, I know I'm like talking around a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta throw out a title. You gotta. I know. I'm gonna say what women want. No. What women want that the that movie strings her out so offensively. I know. know. All right. I'm gonna try in the bedroom. In the bedroom is the correct answer. Then I'm also gonna try the wrestler. 2001's best slap. Yes. Very much so. Did you just say the wrestler? Yeah, I'm going to try the wrestler as well. The wrestler is correct. Okay, so it does get her all Oscar of her nominees. Oscar nominations. Okay, and then I'm going to try. Well, now that I think of the wrestler, is it before the devil knows you're dead? No, that is a great performance by her. That it's just like, why is she so good in this? Like, she just takes nothing on the page and makes it amazing. Um, Okay, so you got your two wrong guesses. I'm going to give you the year of the remaining title. It is 2015. Okay, it's her most recent title on her known for. Her most recent title. It is not a Spider-Man. It is... Spider's Man. It is not a Spider's Man. Do you remember the movie Eight-Legged Freaks with Scarlett Johansson about the giant spiders? Yes. And the te- in all the like movie trailers and the TV commercials, the one guy... Because it was like the same year as Spider-Man or like the next year. It was either two- late 2002 or 2003. It was obviously... It must have been 2003 or maybe even 2004 because it was made after Spider-Man became like the biggest earner and box office history and so the one guy is like what's what is it and this guy goes it's a spider man and it was in every fucking trailer trying to like leech off of the popularity absolutely not wait is 2015 no 2014 was uh love is strange right uh i'm looking that up now wouldn't it, it have been not great? love is strange i will say that wouldn't like, it have been great truly, if it was though oh my god i would have just like i would have leapt out of hearts my body. and flowers she's so she deserved an oscar nomination for love is strange and she noted ira sax ensemble member i love his movies I she do will too. be in frankie this year i, can't I do wait too to see it. all right 2015 what has she been making lately? it is a crime against humanity that this is on her known for oh no is it bad it's a movie I despise, and like I, I'm mad that like this is what people think they know Marissa Tomei for. What's more offensive than if a Spider's Man showed up? How far down the like the the call sheet is she? Let me look in here. Actually, she's not the lead though. I can't imagine. I would. Uh, it looks like it's like everyone's build in order of appearance. I would imagine if it was billed off of like top billing, she would be the top billed female actress. Oh, okay. So um, it's a boy movie. 
Stupid the top billed female actress in the sense that like there are eight men and then she's the first one. She's the first woman we get to. Probably, yeah. Uh, 2015. I wouldn't be shocked if it's like a dozen men and then it's her. Oh, God. So 2015 is Spotlight, Mad Max, Revenant. What was going on that year? I'm probably and going. There. I'm probably on the wrong track with Oscar shit. Um, nope. No. You are not. Oh. Sadly. I fully forgot she's in this movie. It's the big short, isn't it? It is human abomination. She's not the big short. in that movie. Yeah, exactly. She's just not. Exactly. Jesus. Like, who? who is the actress that has close to as much screen time in that movie? Is it Adapera Aduya? It's no, the one woman who comes like, out of that movie no ahead is Margot Robbie. But like, that's, that's 30 seconds. Of course. I hate that movie. When Vice came out last year, not to relitigate <laughs> Vice and everybody hated it, I was like, you are acting like you have been betrayed by the movie that Adam McKay. The Big made Short is a much better movie like, than Vice. I mean, I think. To what end? Like, they are <laughs> both, they both have very similar problems and are both similarly offensive. I liked I liked anyway. a lot more about Big Short than I did about Vice, but we can argue about that on another day. Another right. time. Okay, Marissa Tomei, well picked. I have chosen for you, we talked a lot about the Lord of the Rings, and I was going through so many Lord of the Rings uh, actors, and if we talk about the Harry Potter universe swallowing up people's IMDb lists, Lord of the Rings is insane. Everybody in that movie just gets... Is all three Lord of the Rings? Utterly, it's like all three Lord of the Rings. It's it's Elijah Wood, it's uh, it's a lot of people. The one... Liv Tyler. Yep. The one who it's not the case for is ostensibly, I would say, maybe that movie's star, or at least the, the actor who they wanted to make the biggest action star, is curiously old Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, he's in his 60s. Who, I will say, this doesn't have none of the Lord of the Rings movies, but I will make you guess which one. Uh, Return of the King. Yes, well guessed. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Green Book. No. Ah, not the soon enough for Green Book. pizza folding antics of Green Book are not on his known for. Cool. That's, that, I mean, that's a good thing. I am not going to complain about that. Yeah. Um... Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so he actually is still, like, recent. So I'm going to be willing to bet that the rest of them are post-Lord of the Rings. Because everything else before Lord of the Rings is small and 28 days. <laughs> Correct? Can you... Uh, you don't have to give me I that will confirm nor deny you are not in the hint stage of this game yet, sir. All right, You are fine. too good at this game for me to, like, throw hints around at. I will say that if you're thinking that he only has 28 days before Lord of the Rings in terms of his career, I will say justice for certain shot-for-shot uh, shot remakes, which... Oh, right. He's in Psycho. You see his butt in Psycho. You sure do. Um, no, but he's in... Uh, justice for 28 days. 28 days is... Right. I like 28 Days. IMDb should have the fake soap opera uh, Santa Cruz. Uh, anyway, uh, just going to guess is one of his Oscar nominations, Eastern Promises? Yes, Eastern Promises. 
Okay, in that case, I'm going for the other Cronenberg, A History of Violence. Incorrect. That is That two is strikes. silly that Eastern Promises is there, and that is not. Um, two strikes. All right, so you're missing 2009. Two and strikes? What was my other guess? Green Book. Oh, Green Book. Duh. 2009 and 2016. 2016 has to be his other Oscar nomination, Captain Fantastic? Yes, it is Captain Fantastic. I People never like think that movie. Of, he's a quiet three-time Oscar nominee. Yeah, yeah. And as um, you mentioned with The History of Violence, could have easily been a four-time Oscar nominee. Yeah, totally. Um, 2009, so it is post... Um, yeah, you were right about that. I just yeah, didn't want to okay. give you any more hints. Um... It also would have been post his nomination for Eastern Promises, so it's after his first nomination. Yep. Is that when Hidalgo came out? <laughs> it might have been, but that's not it. But let me look up when Hidalgo came out. I want to say Hidalgo was 05, but let me look. I'm pretty sure I remember Ed Harris having Appaloosa 04. in there, too. Hidalgo so Appaloosa. was 04, and his hair looks stupid. <laughs> Is he it Appaloosa? Him. Ed Harris had Appaloosa. Is he in Appaloosa? I'm pretty sure that's him and Ed Harris and Renee Zellweger. And that was like, oh, yeah, he is. You're right. No, it's not that. Oh. That was, oh, uh, wait. What the hell is it? It's too early to be a dangerous method. Yep. Correct. Is it the road? It is the road. Mm, which I, I always make remember sure I as being right, earlier yes. than it is because that movie took forever to come out. Yes, I always thought it was earlier than that too, but apparently not. It premiered at Venice and then Toronto in late 2009, and then it opened in the United States by like November. No, December. By December. Didn't it year. open at like Thanksgiving? Because that's exactly what everyone wants to see at Thanksgiving. It was a week before Christmas, actually, but same concept. Yeah. <laughs> Even better. Even better. The road is a fucking bummer y'all and if you think it also isn't that good like i can handle a bummer i can handle a real bummer but like be i don't know good like also have more of charlie's there on than you have if you're going to be a bummer at least give me that yeah but like if you read the book and you know that she's cast in that role you know she's in five minutes of the movie i know also thank you for reminding me that that was the year that everybody was like if you read the book you'd know and i'd be like i didn't read fucking the road so maybe give me a goddamn <laughs> you break. didn't have to see the road I, I i also did not have to and yet i did all right we've been talking for a good minute y'all about the majestic and yet other things that were not the majestic and we are going to give you a break and let you go about your day so that is our episode if you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, please find me on Twitter at uh, Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also Letterbox under the same name. And I'm also writing regularly at the Film Experience. Ooh, boy. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I am a uh, read is spelled, by the way, R-E-I-D. And I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed is still spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank 
Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with visibility on Apple Podcasts, so remember to switch that reel and then write something nice about us, won't you? I didn't mention the fact that Martin Landau's character dies while trying to switch a reel in a movie. That would have made more sense. You know what? It's fine. Just just pretend. I have a message for Germany, Martin <laughs> Landau says. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Martin Landau. We didn't really talk very much about Martin Landau in this movie, but he seems old in it. <laughs> the, the movie's defining characteristic for this character is, isn't he nice and old? Isn't he nice and old and misses his dead soldier son? All right. Once again, we also didn't talk about the like suspension of disbelief and the fact that like nobody really, except for this one guy, thought he didn't look like the guy who was dead. All right. Um. Also, can we talk about how? No, we can't. Fine. Yeah, we can't. I was gonna say <laughs> Matt Damon does the voice of the character, and it's like who's who in their right mind is confusing oh, Matt Damon even wait, no, by we voice? Have to. I'm sorry, for Jim listeners, Carrey. if you thought you were getting out of here, but you're not. No, we have to talk about it because honestly, it won't take long. Can you think of a more Matt Damon was originally supposed to play? the jim carrey role in the majestic and then just white and have a jaw like well, that's not like necessarily okay but he turned it down to take the role of jason bourne in the bourne identity and can you think of well a more done. fateful decision because the bourne movies were what like got matt damon from his slump his post goodwill hunting slump to his rebound in the mid 2000s, right? Where like yes. if it weren't for the Bourne movies, Matt Damon's career would be like nothing today. And like if he takes the Majestic, all that goes away. Somebody else plays Jason Bourne and Matt Damon, somebody else is Matt Damon today. That's what. And Jim Carrey gets an Oscar for playing Jason Bourne. <laughs> all right. I just had to I just had to throw that out there because that kind of shit is wild to me. The like what that you know, the movie ends with that essentially. I was fully laughing because it's like who is confusing Matt Damon for Jim Carrey yeah. anyway anyway all right once again a reminder we will be doing a mailbag episode soon so send us your questions send your questions to at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz on Twitter or we have set up a nice little email address and so you know Chris went to the trouble of setting up an email address so you might as well use it email us at had Oscar buzz at gmail.com no need for underscores in that and yeah give us your questions we can't wait to answer them on an upcoming mailbag episode that is all very exciting very exciting that is all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz Everyone's a winner.